Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. Do you know your GDPR from your ISO? Is your business cyber secure? If not, give agency a call on 03455 760 999. You can visit their website at www.theagency.com. An agency is with an I, not a Y. Hi, welcome to this week's episode. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Holly Powell-Jones, and we discuss her recent uh, doctoral research, where she conducted um, a study asking children, well, adolescents mainly, about why they might or might not report things online, what what were considered legal, illegal, um, and, you know, a really, really good in-depth discussion on where young people sit with their confusion about the law, about online behaviour, and uh, we kind of digressed a little bit into uh, the difficulties of uh, really understanding this for young people, um, because the law isn't always quite clear. So... I'm just thinking uh, the best thing to do is probably just let you listen to the uh, interview rather than me rambling on and just to say that um, I have a couple of episodes coming up and then I'm going to take a a short break probably later on in the summer time you know as I did last year um, to give myself just a little bit of rest and recuperation because I've got a lot on at the moment and of course I want some time for self-care Um, And then going forward, it won't be long before we're into kind of September, October, and that will be heading towards season three, um, which is quite outstanding for for something that I thought I might not I might not can get going for a long time. Um, I've got people actually asking to be on the podcast. And I just wanted to say thank you for those who take the time to message me to email I really, really do appreciate the feedback. And um, yes, I'm going to get to those kinds of uh, studies and subjects soon. Um, Obviously, getting some of the people that I need to speak to um, or getting to some of the people that I need to speak to and having these kinds of conversations isn't quite as easy as uh, one, two, three, because uh, obviously because of the kind of subjects that they are. Hopefully there's going to be a lot more going forward in terms of diversity again on uh, topics. Um, I might be having some people back from season one, season two, um, just to have a discussion about where things are now, 18 months, two years down the line in terms of progress in uh, cyberspace. Um, Yeah, until next time, have a great week. Um, I hope you're enjoying this episode and uh, thank you for listening, watching. Take care. Welcome to Cyber Synapse. This week I'm joined by Dr. Holly Powell Jones. And the reason I, I'm I'm kind of well, I begged, borrowed, and pleaded to get you on this podcast actually. So I'm I'm just gonna fess up there. Um you have recently finished your PhD uh in sociology at the uh, City University, isn't it? Uh down in London. And your PhD was around um in fact, would you like to get, would you like to introduce yourself in sure. terms of your research? But yeah. what we're going to be looking at today is something that's cropped up in the last two episodes regarding why adults don't report things online or what's happened online. And actually, that's kind of what you looked at, but with adolescents. 
That's right. Yeah. So I'll give you the, the elevator <laughs> pitch for my research. Um, yeah. So uh, I um, uh, used to teach social, well, I still do teach social media law and ethics in secondary schools. Um, and I think uh, the, the, the legal framework is something that's really absent from a lot of digital literacy uh-huh. in schools. We don't start with the basics, which is what is it? What is a criminal offence online? What is serious versus kind of um, less serious? And um, through that, I uh, got a police funding grant and I worked with a local media company. We reached thousands, literally thousands of young people. So mm-hmm. I was going to schools, very regularly talking to young people about what they thought was or wasn't a crime online. And uh, someone said to me, oh, that'd make a really interesting research project. Um, so that's kind of what I did. I got a scholarship to go to City University um, and work in their sociology department. But my research basically investigates perceptions of risk online uh, with 11 to 18 year olds, bearing in mind that I am talking about risks in a very subjective, socially constructed. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at what young people do or don't think is a risk online, but also what beliefs are underpinning those viewpoints. So I asked them to say, how risky is it and why? Um, and uh, basically wrote down everything they said and analyzed the results. Yeah. Okay. So the geek in me goes, um, uh, <laughs> let's, we might come on to how, how we actually analyze all of this stuff. Cause language is, is key. Uh, mm. Language. I mean, I think I've started Absolutely. With that. Langu- language matters. Language is key. So, um, for those, those people who have been listening for a while, um, I absolutely adore talking about how adolescents uh, work, what their brain does, how it, you know, how they make sense of the world. So should we start with, um, do you want to go through what your findings were? Because I know that you've got a fantastic two minute video. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not even two minutes, actually. Talk about being able to be succinct. Um, and what you talked about was the effects that you found and, and kind of what, what young people were saying and the kind of material that they looked at risks on, uh, that you defined risks under. Yeah. So I gave out some stimulus material, uh, which was basically mm-hmm. um, some mocked up examples of different posts, online yeah. posts. And they were meant to represent uh, things that uh, could be criminally offensive. Um, so things like uh, indecent images, um, obviously, I couldn't give indecent images to young people, so it was a link with a, a message that was mocked up to suggest an indecent yeah. um, malicious or threatening, harassing communications, um, hate speech, um, allegations of child abuse, um, uh, and a few other things as well. Um, uh, and these were um, based on, so the Crown Prosecution Service has got uh, guidelines on prosecuting yeah. media offences, so that's kind of what was informing that. Um, and my main finding really I mean my number one finding is complete lack of consensus um, mm-hmm. is or isn't a criminal risk online and for me the disturbing thing was that the sharing of indecent images of someone that could be underage as well was the one that had the most debate and disagreement which is strange because that is the one area of social media law that I think has been done to death in school um, so it's strange to me to see that that is the one that is still having a lot of debate and, and uncertainty around how legal that is. A um, few other interesting findings, um, depressing findings, uh, is that the, um, the victim blaming victim responsibility rhetoric is still very, very strong amongst young people. So, um, you know, 
somebody, a victim, a target, shouldn't have done X if they didn't yeah. get attacked. Um, but also even after an incident had occurred, people saying, well, um, the victim should um, just choose not to be offended by that or um, they should just brush it off. Or, or sometimes, uh-huh. sometimes even, oh, the victim wouldn't care, they wouldn't notice, they wouldn't see. So real denial of victim legitimacy in online spaces, online contexts, uh-huh. right down to the classic old, it's just words. It's not doing anything. Uh-huh. Have you seen, because I've just had one of those fizz moments, Professor Alice Roberts has gone off Twitter for the, those exact reasons. One of very many, very many people now. And yeah. I actually think one of the examples I gave out was a celebrity um, a, a tweet about Beyonce. And that was because, um, the other studies have shown this as well, that um, this idea of celebrity is quite interesting because people are famous or because they're rich or because they've chosen to put themselves in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. There is this idea that they cannot be a victim or that they cannot be victimised or that words won't hurt them. Um, and that's, of course, just just not true we know that you know lots of people who are very famous and very public and um, do get a lot of abuse they are a bigger target and it does affect them really negatively yeah um so and i think with social media as well we are allowing young people to become micro celebrities very very quickly mm-hmm. so part of that thinking is that well they've got loads of followers they put themselves out where they're they're not going to be affected by online abuse i mean that is that is a really uh, worrying thing um, yeah, well, God, I've got so many questions to ask you. I'm just going to have to slow myself down a touch, right? Because um, I think what we can do is we can have a look at, um, you know, let's have a look at uh, online abuse, what that is, and because we've had the online, uh, try again, online harms white paper, which I haven't actually gone into a podcast discussion with anybody about just yet, but we might do some of that here. But I'm just thinking, so... We've got a social media platform that allows uh, misandry, misogyny, uh, victim blaming. We've also got um, the idea of Facebook famous. So that was that was the phrase that young people would use. So um, many years ago, eight, nine years ago, I was actually going into schools doing um, PHSE. And I'd, I'd be saying, okay, this is what happens to your brain when you get drunk and so on and so forth. And I actually used to give an example and say to the, the young people, so if you did this, would you do that for that amount of money? And kind of the dog, no, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, what about if I gave you 100 quid and made your Facebook famous? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so actually buying into celebrity is something that's sought after. And I think young people say, I want to be a YouTuber. Well, it's no, it's changed now. The narrative is now Twitcher. Mm. I want to be a Twitcher and earn, earn the money. So there is this thing about what are we doing as a society to create this narrative that's kind of uh, producing children who want to be YouTubers, Twitchers, Facebook famous, and then have this kind of attitude that, you know, if you are famous, well, you're free game. Anybody can ever go at you. And I think that's absolutely the right question to be asking. I mean, you know, you say you're talking about very micro level what's going on in your brain at certain points. Mm -hmm. I'm very... I'm very macro level as well in that I'm like, well, what's going on in the culture and the society and the politics around um, these young people as they're growing up? And how does that affect um, kind of how they perceive um, what is and isn't acceptable behaviour and and what is and isn't, you know, deviant versus normal and all these kinds of things? And the reality is, I think it's very hypocritical of some of the people who are in power at the moment trying to um, sort of crack down on 
online hate speech, abusive um, comments and kind of incivility and stuff online. Mm-hmm. But actually, we have a lot of that in our public sphere, in our media, in yeah. our politics. And, you know, let's just state the blooming obvious. The president of the United States of America is the person who young people say to me, well, you're telling me I shouldn't say this and I can't say this and that this is a risk and that that's going to damage my reputation. But he's managed to become one of the leaders of one of the largest countries in the world. Um, So is that even true? And that's a really valid point. You know, Um, I think it's very hypocritical of adults to make this a problem with children and young people when actually uh-huh. we have a problem in our society with all of these things. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think one of, sometimes when I am teaching um, I, and I hear this narrative coming out from the adults and I, I kind of do that thing where I lean forward and go, who parents them? Mm. Who, who actually parented these children that are now doing this behaviour? Where, where did this stem from? They didn't just suddenly become abusive, um, you know, <laughs> children. There's learned behaviours, there's um, socialised behaviours, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think the media well, as well. I mean, I yeah. teach, I'm a lecturer in media law and ethics for journalism students and PR students and media students. Yeah. And there, there is some research and some evidence that a lot of the behaviour online and on social media is mimicking what happens in the mainstream media and in the press. And so there's a bit of a, a, a thing going on there with um, actually what happens in our press and our mainstream media does influence um some of the online behaviors as well I, absolutely i think when 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 i see um so there was a tweet that i've ended up being slightly sarcastic about today when i actually see um kind of teachers or adults saying oh you know the children are being cyberbullied and they're doing this and they're doing that actually if you look at some of these um people who are online they they also do the same things but they will justify it in the way that will say well actually i'm arguing a point kath well are you arguing a point or does that come under the classification of trolling or does it come under flaming or does it come under cyberbullying or does it come under online harms you know and there's another problem too many categories too many um labels for things without saying this is what this is um I I personally don't I mean I I can see that it's needed in certain situations and unfortunately it's very common now so we kind of are stuck with it but even the term cyberbullying I am a little bit um uncomfortable at times with that huge broad brushstroke definition because are we talking about hate speech are we talking about stalking and harassment Are we talking about doxing? Are we talking about, um, you know, defamation or privacy breaches? Like there's so many things, Mm -hmm. behaviours within that, that um, I do think it's interesting to look at terminology. And in the four chapters, uh, findings chapters of my thesis, the first chapter was all about meaning making and labelling terminology and how young people interpreted meaning, whether they thought it was Mm -hmm. ambiguous or not and what labels they, they put to it. The second chapter was looking at the relationships between a perpetrator and a target as well and how that affected whether or not it was seen as acceptable to to post. The third one was looking at justifications and the ways in which an individual sender and their rights were seen to potentially Mm -hmm. trump uh, a target. And, and, And lastly, I looked at whether they thought there were any potential consequences 
for the behavior. Um, and often it was the case of no consequences, even if they thought the behavior itself wasn't acceptable. When it drilled down to, well, what would happen to someone if they posted this? Often it was, well, probably nothing. Uh, yes. What, what I picked up, I think it was on your press release when you put that out. Actually, I was supposed to have that on in the background, but I got sidelined with getting this sorted this morning. Um, the, the on um, One of the things that you'd said was um, that children didn't even understand uh, uh, for most of, most of the time that you actually can get in trouble for uh, illegal activity online because uh, the, there's this thing about but it's online it's not real life mm. and that that distinction between not understanding that virtual is the same as real you know yeah and I, I think again we've got to look at the context within within <laughs> these discussions as well so um, there is a lot of inconsistency into how the law is applied in practice we know this and I think on the one hand I get very frustrated when people talk about a wild west of an online environment that doesn't <laughs> have any rules that doesn't have any laws and um, we have plenty of laws and this is why I teach social media law mm -hmm. we have plenty of laws that are um, applied to online behavior and I use a whole host of real life case studies of people that have been prosecuted for mm -hmm. online content or conduct under these laws. So firstly, you don't know that the police aren't gonna do anything because quite often they do. But on the other hand, it is very inconsistent. And at the same time, we hear many stories, particularly with so-called revenge porn, image-based um, abuse and sharing of sexual imagery, um, that, that the police have said, you know, quite recently there was a report saying that they haven't had any training since the law came in in 2015. And so victims are still being told we can't do anything about it. So on the one hand, there's a crackdown, on online speech, mm -hmm. then on the other hand, there is quite often victims being left told that they can't do anything. So no wonder children are confused. Um, yeah, well, this that kind of ties into um, my my work as a therapist is quite often the the, the resulting impact of uh, sexting, uh, you know, and how. A, we've had so many names for it over the last five, six years that sometimes I don't actually know what what I'm now supposed to call it because um, it was uh, my. Uh, and I think I've actually said this before on the podcast, I was talking to one young lady a couple of years ago and I'd said, yes, but that's classed as an indecent image. And she said, actually, Kath, it was well decent. And I went, and that's the problem with language. Yeah. You know, it's a yeah. classic moment. But yeah. I do find with um, the, the, the underage sharing of explicit images, because that's what I'm now calling it, yeah. um, is CEOP brought out their rules and said, well, actually, what you need to do is look at it this way, that way, and the other way. And it's being interpreted subjectively by different uh, local authorities, police forces, schools. Um, yeah. And then what I do find is that the narrative that tends to come into the room is um, all men are misogynists. Uh, it's all down to the boys being uh, aggressive, coercive, et cetera, et cetera. And the girls are the victims. And yet mm. when I get into the nitty gritty of sitting with the clients and so on, yeah. actually there's victims on both sides. There's victims, you know, where images have then been shared without consent, but we don't have the same kind of laws that apply to what's called revenge porn because yeah. that's, that's only 18 plus. So, you know, I we're in this... I, I feel like there's three there's three things to mention here. The first one is um, what I'm hearing a lot now and what I agree with is we have to be careful of using laws that were designed to protect children to yeah. 
criminalize and cause further harm to children. So we really have mm -hmm. to affect whether it is in the public interest to prosecute for that sort of behavior. And the second thing I want to say is, look, girls are growing up in a hyper, and boys, and, uh, and um, gender neutral people increasingly, because gender is fluid, as we know, um, are growing up in a, a hyper-sexualized culture whereby yeah. role models who we look up to, rich, famous, successful, powerful women tend to self-objectify a lot. You can't walk down the street without seeing a, a scantily clad, but, but ultimately successful, powerful women mm -hmm. uh, image in front of you. So um, it is almost you know, natural when you think about it that younger girls will want to emulate that. And the third thing I wanted to say is it's a good point here to mention the Law Commission. So the Law Commission undertook a kind of scoping review of online and abusive behaviours, and they published a report with um, so, some information on that in November 2018. It's on their website. They are now looking into reviewing things like hate speech and indecent image sharing uh, online mm. as well. And I think that will really... Um, help um, because one of the things that they found from their scoping report was that terms like obscene, indecent, malicious, um, grossly offensive um, were so subjective and vague as to almost be unhelpful. Uh-huh. Well, my, my slant on some of this um, has been uh, so recently I had the, the latest CEOP think, you know, update, blah, 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 blah. And this is what you need to tell children. Sexting is wrong. And I went, well, that's a bit of a moral compass, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe we say it's illegal and we give them the law, but we can't say if it's right or wrong because exactly. that's about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And the reason why I love doing what I do in terms of my online media law work in schools is that I get to go in and say, look, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't invent these laws. I'm here to yeah. communicate that they exist to you and show you how they're applied. Um, but what I love is that the idea that I'm creating a whole generation of critical legal scholars and critical criminologists, because they do, they turn around to me and say, hang on, so what, I can have sex I'm 16, but I can't mm -hmm. send a sexy picture until I'm 18. Hang on, so I can be held criminally responsible from the age of 10, but I can't, I'm not responsible enough to own a pet until I'm 13 under the law. Yeah. Like, what is going on? And I, I love having those conversations. And to be honest, I don't understand why we don't have public legal education in schools already. Human rights mm -hmm. law should be a basic part of PSHE already um and the social media digital law aspect is just one part of that really and i often get asked about sex and crime more in my sessions than i do about digital communications yes uh pornography is the question and and it, and it relates to pornography and you know so i can have sex but i can't watch pornography i can share in it i can share an image when i make it so all of those same kind of arguments and that's literally what i sit with and I'm going to say some of them are about 10 or 11 because the age at which pornography is being accessed is eight. Um, so I am working with lots and lots of young children. Um, and there is a whole heap of conversations that absolutely mimic and reflect what you've just said there. And I go, I know it doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not sure how I'm supposed to explain it to you, but this is what it is. And one of the things I noticed actually from my research, and I did mention it because one of the posts was an allegation of, of an abusive uh, relationship, sexual relationship between uh, an adult and a child, a teacher and a student. Mm -hmm. and, and that was almost the most interesting one for me because young people were so aware of sexual offending, of grooming, of paedophilia, of rape. Um, 
and those discussions I think are really really important to have and um, sometimes mm-hmm. they brought up um, sexual violence without me having even thought of it in connection to a post that I'd created but it's it's very clear to me that young people are comfortable and even confident to have these conversations and they want to have these conversations but I fear that it's adults who are uncomfortable about leaning yeah. into those conversations <laughs> and wanting to shut it down in order to protect children when actually I think the best way to protect children is to lean into those conversations uncomfortable as they are because children want to and need to talk about things like this yes um so uh, and and many people know this on the podcast I talk about I have always had very very frank conversations with my children um uh, uh, to the point of being accused of being a liberal parent, you know, because I'm like, but the thing is, is if you have these conversations, then there's no shame about a conversation to be had. Um, I probably embarrassed the heck out of my kids when I was doing the the kind of sex education and so on, because I, I'd, I'd talked to them way before, way before they were, um, you know, having sex. We had conversations about body parts, about people, about consent, um, uh, and which I'll probably come back to that one. But the, the conversations that I have most with my clients are that nobody's talking to them like this. So that, and I do find that's what happened when I was teaching the sex education was the the materials that I was asked to share with the children, A, were inappropriate because they were generally victim blaming um, or terribly horrific, which is the thing that I ended up um, debating on Victoria Derbyshire against the, the NSPCC. These resources do not need to be shown to children a conversation needs to be had yeah and uh, for me that's the way that children learn is when you say okay so this is what the law is what do you think absolutely and I think asking questions I mean I teach at universities as well as in secondary schools and I think asking questions is the best way to teach Mm -hmm. actually is to have a reflective conversation yes and if young people say something that you think oh gosh that doesn't sound right rather than saying you're completely wrong ask a question say that's an interesting point why do you think that or what about this or how come this happened Mm -hmm. or what if say this scenario you know and just get them to kind of do the work themselves through thinking through and talking through because I I can absolutely say from my perspective I'm not from a social sciences background my undergrad degree was in theatre my postgrad degree was in radio journalism and I've ended up in criminology and sociology and law um, at PhD level and the way that I learnt about sociology was through talking, listening and discussion-based learning so um, I think that's really really important to encourage um, more of um, and especially around difficult subject matter because if us adults can't have a a proper sensible conversation that's Mm -hmm. respectful um, about sensitive subject matter how can we expect young people to well it, it for me this is the this is the issue around um, the discussions around pornography it yeah. doesn't even happen within my profession yeah. uh, in terms of psychosexual therapists will talk about pornography your average everyday therapist is like not for me thank you so what does happen um and i've i've kind of developed this course with another therapist is that a we need to be talking to children about it um, I'll come on to why I think that's so urgent in just a second, but we need to be talking to our children in the therapy room and saying every topic is on the table here, particularly the one industry you are likely to come across. And, and you know, let's just go with the news of today that actually, and this 
pornography age verification thing is still nowhere in sight. So the likelihood is this, this is continuing. Children are coming across it and they will see it and they will share it and they will watch it. And, and why are we not having these discussions in the therapy room? One of the best things that I saw in the theatre for a long time, I used to go to the theatre a lot, mm-hmm. a show called Why Is the Sky Blue by Abby Wright, Tacroom Theatre. Why Is the Sky Blue? And it's based on, I think, around 10,000 interviews with young people about pornography. Yeah. And it turned into a musical, uh, what's known as a verbatim musical. So much like with my research, it's verbatim quotes from mm-hmm. young people. Uh, and it was the most amazing, profound, prolific, funny, poignant show that I've seen for a long time. And it shows how you think you're having a conversation about pornography, but it goes into conversations about love, about respect, about yeah. bodies, about sexuality, and all these other things um, that come from mm-hmm. a seemingly sort of dark place actually is a conversation about what it means to be human and how we relate to each other and um i can't believe that show isn't everywhere all the time all around so um yeah well, i've just i've just jotted it down and if i can find a link i'll yeah, probably yeah. i'll put that in the show notes as well theater people who have budgets for this kind of thing please go and look at what is the sky blue it's amazing and it's yeah. from the mouths of children and just like with my research what we're trying to do here is make sure that young people's voices and perspectives and opinions are not lost in the debate about policies that are going to affect them absolutely um for me there's something about the best thinkers on the planet are the adolescents because of just because of what's going on in terms of how they think, you know, they're not limited and constrained by the boxes, are they? No, and they're still in that stage of learning to challenge yeah. Uh, yeah. authority. Yeah. And that's a really, <laughs> so it's tricky, but it's also a really wonderfully productive space to have conversations. Yeah, I've, ju- I've just realised this was the, the point I was going to make about pornography. So the question I get asked in therapy is... So how come, Kath, and this this will go back to that indecent images, uh, underage images, kind of uh, sticky uh, wicket that the children are finding themselves around, is when we say that you have to be 18 to watch pornography um, and that people in pornography need to be 18 plus to actually take part, how come some of them dress as though they're 14, 15, 16? And then why do we then have the difficulties of young people going but I don't know how to tell the age. And, you know, so I'm just thinking there is a campaign from the Marie Collins, actually, it's on Lad Bible about if you don't know whether somebody's 18 or not, just don't watch it. And I'm like, but how do the kids know this? If they go to, let's go with the most famous uh, free site, they're right at the very top, barely legal. Well, how do they know if somebody is legal or not legal on that very cusp when some of the people dress in the pornography videos as though they are younger anyway. And this links right back to, I think it was a year or two ago, Plan UK was looking at girls' rights and they were mm-hmm. talking, they did a report about street harassment and the number of girls that have been harassed, in sexually harassed in public in their school uniform as well. This mm-hmm. is connected, you know? Yeah. And, and what a difficulty for young people. In yeah. Terms of, in terms of trying to understand where the law fits in, 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 in kind of like pornography, sexual relationships, sexuality, what they're, what they're doing online, and then the law. Yeah, there's a, there's a case that I want to talk about, and I have to watch myself legally with this one mm-hmm. um, to get it right. But there was a case of a businessman, a well-known businessman, 
yeah. uh, who um, met uh, uh, an underage girl through a sugar daddy website um, and was mm-hmm. cleared of all charges in relation to um, sex with that girl, um, which people can find that case very easily online mm-hmm. and read if they want to. But I think that case for me flags up all the moral, ethical, legal issues with yes. how we think about things like power, responsibility, consent, age, etc. Uh, online. And I, again, rather than telling girls, don't go on a sugar daddy website or don't, and um, we're increasingly now we're talking about university students being engaged in webcamming and other forms of sex work, rather than saying to girls, don't do it. The broader question has to be, well, why are people doing it? What's driving people to use those sites? I mean, for for girls, it obviously is there is a financial, amongst many other things, um, a financial and and a love and attention pull factor for them. Um, And I think we need to have another conversation that's linked, which is what is driving men, uh, older men, to use these these sites as well and and have a look at it in a sort of holistic way. And if possible, in a non-judgmental way, because I'm not saying... not one of these kind of um puritan paternalistic types who says let's shut it all down it's all terrible um i just think um again it's actually the black and white kind of um simplified thinking about it that is harming debate um Mm -hmm. and we're not like i say we're not talking to the very people that are within these environments that we need to be talking to to really get a handle on what's going on and making sure um that people are safe i mean i want to protect children just as much as the next person but I don't think we can do that by excluding people who know what they're talking about from the conversations yeah I have I have noticed that quite a lot of the research that um and I'm going to go blames uh pornography and so on because there's quite a lot of it out there I was thinking when you've well when we first started um the I don't know if you've listened to John Ronson's uh, co- um, conversation last days of August. Um, I haven't, but I've heard so many great things about it. It's it's a very good podcast in terms of um, how he just puts the, the kind of, let's call it, evidence out there for you to think about. He's done it in a fabulous way that makes people critically think as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there is something about the uh, online abuse that this lady uh, was subjected to. And I'm going to go in quotes just because she was a porn star and that made it a justification for kind of attacking her. Um, there is something about the, the narrative of when, when we blame porn for the reason why children do. Well, actually, it's a lot. There's a lot more going on. And I, I'm fully aware because of the research that I do, what is happening within the porn industry and kind of how it does twist and change the narrative. I mean, the the criminologist in me says this goes right back to Mm -hmm. constructs of ideal victims and ideal offenders. Nils Christie did a paper in the 80s on this. Um, Who gets legitimate victim status and who doesn't? And we are still very tied up in a lot of stereotypes about victims and perpetrators um, that we need to kind of free ourselves from, I think, in terms of when we talk about a lot of these things. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, and, and, and victimology, which is almost like a, a sub part of criminology, um, has been really, really interesting for me because my research is very much placing young people almost like a social audience of behaviours. So I'm giving them the mm-hmm. example. And they are like the witnesses, the bystanders, the, the public, the press, whatever you like, looking at this behavior and making a judgment on it. And um, 
I love being a sociologist because whatever we're talking about, the question always comes back to, you know, Howard Becker's, whose side are we on here? We have to keep critical about decide and define what is acceptable in our society. And Mm -hmm. it is always tied up with power. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's what we have to think about as as sociologists. And I think as people in the media as well, whose side are we on? Whose voices are we amplifying and whose are we um, overlooking? Uh, well, yes, this goes back to that kind of parenting, uh, what I kind of mentioned before we came on here about the holier than now parents who are on social media giving it, we understand digital parenting, we understand, well, quite often I go, okay, N equals one, how many children have you actually got? Mm. Uh, and for me, there's something about, we can't know everything. Um, it's, it's why I dislike the word expert when people say, oh, cat's an expert, and I go, no, I'm not, I'm a specialist, but I'm not an expert, because actually I don't know everything, and... I've only got my frame of reference to the world. It's, it's my experience. Um, and I'm, I don't want to talk like an uh, academic and go phenomenology, but it yeah. is my, it's my experience of the world. And I'm, I've kind of been shaped by my experiences and my uh, uh, kind of like my access to stuff because there's probably things I don't know. I think as well, like with, with my research, and I've written about it in more detail in my thesis, is um, we have social contexts within which we learn about what is isn't okay in the world. And, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in the old medieval days, you would have had probably quite a specific social context. Your village, you know, would have been, they yeah. would have set the, the very clear kind of uh, rules for engagement of social life. Um, but now, because of because of the online world and everything being more mobile, we've got access to lots of different social contexts with lots of different social norms, and yes. the boundaries between them are blurring, uh-huh. integrating, and there's leakage, if you like, of, of of ideas. And on the one hand, that's very exciting, but I also think that is leading to um, almost a bit of a dare I say it like normlessness whereby particularly in online environments anything goes we know on the dark web that you can go in various chat rooms you can go to places and have conversations that people like me would think are absolutely outrageous um view Mm -hmm. but yet have them normalized in certain groups and and you know we're kind of getting to the online grooming radicalization sort of discussions now as well but but that is the point and we need to keep coming back to can we find universal moral values in this day and age? And I think that's when it's really useful to come back to universal human rights. And if we can go back to that framework, (laughs) we might one day be able to have some kind of regulatory governing system that works on a global scale. Yeah. Yeah, what's what's good for the humans? So I I have a phrase where I say humanity plus or human, uh, and I've taken it from somebody else. So it's not mine at all. I've totally plagiarised. But there you are. I'm gonna I'm gonna own that. Um, yeah, is it is it for the good of humanity or is it not? And and when I do have that framework, actually, where am I coming from? Mm. Because um, I was just thinking the thing that I constantly say. Um, both to clients when I'm teaching I think I've said it on nearly all the podcasts that I've done in some way shape or form that there's something called the Dunbar effect and that's um, 150 people in a hunter-gatherer tribe that's kind of what we can max out on in terms of relationships and, and kind of conversations and yet if you take the people who have access to the internet and kind of apply that to who could access my child we're talking about a village that consists of 4.8 billion people. 
Mm. And that to me, I mean, that, that just blows my head in, in terms of, and how would I come up with what's normal? Yeah. Because for me, there's something about what was once secret and in my head, there's now a place on the internet to go and have that conversation. Yeah, and I do think we have to be clear that there are positive sides mm-hmm. to that as well. So um, a lot of young people now are feeling more open about having conversations publicly about things like mental health, about mm-hmm. sexuality, um, and all these things that would have once been seen as sort of taboo to talk about in public. Um, and I think there's some really positive things about some of that. But um, it is that process between being a child and being an adult and it is a process of becoming um, Mm -hmm. that um, it can be um, I think you know tricky if everything is up and out there online and then you know and adults are some of the worst I think for posting all their innermost darkest thoughts and feelings sort of a bit (laughs) haphazardly online and we talked earlier about how actually it's it's many adults who are very very quick on social media to post a comment that they might later regret it's not specifically a child thing Um, but you know we're all in processes of becoming and with with the public permanent nature of online platforms um how is that going to work in the future are we are we going to get better at erasing our content and are we going to become more self-censoring um are we going to actually just have a shift of social norms and become more forgiving i don't know Mm. well i i must admit my i don't know whether to call it a job but part of part of my teaching counsellors is um, there's ethics that we have to adhere to uh, in, in the real world. Mm. And then we also need to remember that when we're online, those ethics still need to apply. So, for example, I was watching a conversation the other day that said something about what do you think about clients who bring mobile phones into the room? Now, I've got a whole kind of um, a tutorial session where I talk about the ethics, the cybersecurity, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, this thread delineated into, well, I think it's a total load of bollocks, children. And I was like, what is going on here? You know, I think that what you should do is ban the phones out of the room. And and, and literally, these therapists were arguing with each other online to the point that I I actually uh, kind of interjected and said, I'm really concerned that we talk like this to each other. And actually, you haven't, and and it's the phrase I'm constantly using, you have no guarantees that there aren't clients in this group. Mm, mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think the the thing that started me doing this training in the first place was back in 2013 when we elected police and crime commissioners. And Mm -hmm. down in Kent, um, they elected a youth police, well, they, they nominated and hired a youth police and crime commissioner, Paris Brown, who at the age of 17 was very publicly shamed, to quote John Monson's book, um, kind of publicly ruined through, uh, by the press, um, yeah. on the basis of some tweets that she sent. And I've always said, you know, I'm not justifying her comments. I agree that some of those comments were completely yeah. inappropriate for someone who's going to be in charge of the police. But also with my, with my media law and ethics hat on, is that the equivalent of trawling through somebody's bins, going through their old Twitter accounts to try and dredge up material? Is mm-hmm. it valid public interest? I'm not sure. And I think me as a human being with just my own compassionate head on, I would not have done that. Yeah. We were 17 and still under the UN you know, rules still a child. Um, And I also think what kind of message are we sending to young people? We're saying, don't you dare put your head up above the parapet. You dare put yourself forward for a public role and responsibility because we will find something about Mm -hmm. 
that you are ashamed of and we will tear you down. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's what I see in politics all the time. And uh, I think what did spring in then was that that recently happened to Kevin Hart, didn't it, regarding the Oscars. So, and you know, uh, and I actually watched it. I was really curious, actually, how he handled it. I thought was really great um, because he said, I've already apologised for this in the past. I did it when I was X number of years of age. I can't remember how old he was when he made these. Um, they, were, they were slightly misogynistic. Uh, comments I believe he then apologized for it and yet again it got dredged up saying oh do you remember that time you were uh, you know misogynistic and he said I'm a totally different person now and and again to me again it it comes back to well who who has certain power and privileges and who Mm -hmm. because this isn't applied equally we have seen candidates in this country put themselves forward to be prime minister um, Mm -hmm. and then having to go and say oh, actually, yeah, I did take some cocaine back in the day. Oh, whoops, yeah. sorry, let's all move on. We're allowed to make a mistake. And I was like, well, you're allowed to make a mistake because you have certain privileges that come with yes. the world yeah. where you are in society. And there are plenty of people who would not, their political careers would not have survived something like that. So mm-hmm. there were while we're being moral and making judgments about what is and isn't okay, the question has always got to be, well, who is it being applied to? And are we doing something consistently and fairly here? Because I yeah. think we are. Well, I mean, theoretically, um, 17-year-olds are still children, as are 24, 25 and 26-year-olds. You know, if, if you look at brain science, what we do know is that people don't think, um, in fact, I'll quite... I think I, know a few, I think I know a few people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, it was a who might yeah, still be yeah. in that soon. One of, my, uh, one of my clients this week said, well, uh, yeah, my, my thinking was a little bit flawed there. And I said, do you think that's to do with your brain development? Uh, and, and the client went, yeah, because you've taught me about that. But yeah, I was thinking that, you know, it wouldn't happen. And I said, yeah, yeah, I don't, I I also, even regardless of the brain development stuff, I don't want us to live in a society where people are afraid of making mistakes all the time to the point Mm -hmm. that they cannot, um, you know, grow and develop and put themselves out there. I mean, there's some terrifying research that's coming out showing the extent to which young people have have fear of failure um, and fear of being judged. uh, And, and as you, as you've mentioned already, shame, you know, it is such a powerful social tool. And then I think there are some people who need some relief from that fear of shame and embarrassment. And I think there are some people out there who are completely shameless, you know, the president of the United States, some of our politicians who won't apologize for things that they ought to and won't take back comments that they've made are shameless. So some people who could do with a bit more shame and some people do with a bit less perhaps. Um, yeah, for me, for me it's, uh, I kind of go around um, intimacy, empathy and compassion. They're, they're mm-hmm. what I think, that's what would make us the humanity plus kind of, um, like you were saying earlier, then we would have the universal laws and the universal truths and the universal um, empaths and yeah, wouldn't we just be a nice society? <laughs> I live in hope. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do too. And I think sometimes that's that's kind of how I sit as a therapist. It's just going, you know, really? Does this really matter? You know, I, f- I flunked my GCSEs or I didn't get the A-level results I wanted or I said this to my girlfriend and now she's really unhappy with me. And that, Really, in the grand scale of things, is this the, the biggest thing it could ever be? Or do we kind of go, yeah, do you know, sometimes I make mistakes. Um, I often... Um, not not kind of self-disclosure but I often tell uh, my clients how I fail mm. um, so I, I actually put a post up the other day where I 
I jumped into a conversation with my son and I went into mother mode. I went into fixer her. And before you know it, we'd followed the same old patterns. I'd put the phone down and then I went, oh, <laughs> I know this stuff. You know, it was, it was a classic moment where I sat for maybe an hour going, how do I sort this out? Mm-hmm. Well, I know that when there's a rupture, you make a repair and, and you know, and I've got to be the one that does that because I am the person who has transitioned through adolescence. Mm-hmm. Whereas exactly. my children, yeah, my children are still in their twenties, so they're not fully developed in terms of being able to do uh, just a lot of things. Actually, <laughs> I was just going to say impulse control. They're not able to manage their emotions as well because there's something about because that's what it's like to be a young person. And I think part of growing into mm-hmm. adulthood is recognizing that adults aren't these people that have got everything sorted, that know what yeah. they're doing, and recognizing people as adults as being flawed human beings and uh, you know that's that's quite sad but it's also quite empowering I think for young people and to me that is what the process of becoming an adult you know involves um and looking critically at the world around you and thank goodness we've got some amazing young people coming up through the ranks now um I I am so inspired by some of the things that young people are doing to improve society improve politics make positive changes in the world around them and I have to say you know nowhere in my research is there any evidence of a lack of empathy amongst young people you know there is empathy there and and um they they are making um some real strides in fixing a lot of the things that previous generations have completely kind of mucked up really um and that gives me endless hope endless hope Okay, well, because we're, we're on like about 45, 46 minutes, something like that. Um, did you want to kind of quickly go through the, the findings? Love I, think that's, I think that's really, really important for people to kind of get, get a grasp of. That's great. Yeah. So um, running down, I've, I've actually got a list in front of me. Which oh, I'm okay, good. <laughs> Maybe we should have done that. So I've mentioned the fact there's not very much consensus, a lot of diversity in terms of what is seen as risky online and how risky, Um, you know, sharing of indecent images was something that had the most disagreement, even though we should have had the most education on it. Interestingly, the younger students tended to use the higher risk categories a lot more and the older teenagers, the sort of 16, 17, 18 year olds geared towards the lower risk categories. Um, My sort of theory around this is that they've just spent more time online and they will have seen sort of perhaps this type of speech a lot more. They'd have been exposed to it. They might have seen it being sort of tolerated and therefore have the idea that it isn't as risky. Whereas the younger students, bless them, are a bit more like, you know, that's awful. That's got to be a crime. That's terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. I think um, lots of questions about blame and responsibility in relation to risk. Um, Quite often, a lot of responsibility was placed on the target for online kind of abusive messages that the the victim should have uh, behaved differently either before, during or after an incident um, in order to manage that risk to themselves. Um, I think as well, you know, this idea of, um, in the theory, I talked a lot um, about the social construction of risk and the sociology of risk. And I think what keeps coming out again and again is this idea of an ideal citizen is one that can sort of manage all the risks themselves, that they can just sort of skillfully 
um, not take, know about risks, manage risky behavior, minimize risks, deal with it, um, and not have to rely on any kind of external support, state support, parental support, um, or any kind of interventions from anyone else. And it was interesting of the four categories that I gave them for risk, criminal, you know, police, um, civil, suing, uh, ethics and reputation, or no risk. The one that was used the most was the civil risk. Over and over again, young people were like, well, the victim would sue, or the victim could sue, um, more than for police intervention, even for criminal yeah. offences. And again, it's that idea of the individualised citizen not needing any support. And I mean, you don't have to look very hard to see where that rhetoric comes from, that idea that a good citizen doesn't need state support and doesn't need um, this kind of intervention. So I think for me, as a sociologist, that was really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm always perturbed, I think might be a good way of display, uh, kind of describing what it is that I, I'm seeing at the moment. So this idea of the digital citizen. And mm. I think, what? <laughs> That's just my interpretation. What does that actually mean? What? So these, we don't expect children to be a citizen of the world and to manage everything. But yet when they go online they're supposed to be a good digital citizen. And, and right. for me, I kind of go, what What does that actually mean? Well, we and how do, yeah, teach them about <laughs> basic human rights. So I'm not quite <laughs> sure how that's meant to, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and it, it, again, yeah. to me, that it, this is part of, dare I, dare I mention the NL word, ne neoliberal thinking. I know it's a bit of a, mm -hmm. but um, the ideal neoliberal citizen is one that, can manage by themselves. They're self-governing, self-managing, self-responsibilizing, and they do not mm -hmm. need state support and intervention. And, you know, for me, humans are social creatures. We are group creatures. We've always, we all have points where we're vulnerable and we need help from other people. And I wonder, you know, if the, you know, the concerns that we've been having around mental health problems amongst young people is part of this idea that's got into them that they they have to manage everything by themselves um, uh, uh -huh, uh -huh. yes 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 that yeah. was um <laughs> yeah that is my, my main gripe at the minute is these young children are being uh, so for me, there's something about they don't ask for help, Kath. Well, of course they don't, because you keep teaching them not to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And then we say, well, why did you do that? Why didn't you come? And then we've also got the narrative of, well, why did you do that? Why were you on that site? Da, 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 da. So now the child goes, okay, I can't even ask for help mm. when I've done something wrong because I'm not allowed to make mistakes. I'm not allowed to fail. And I'm going to get shamed for doing something. And lo and behold, that kind of feeds into probably why I was having the conversation with Jerry, the, the, um, the other podcast, about why people don't report things online because they think they're going to be scolded scorned shamed ridiculed humiliated and most of the time that's our go-to reaction yeah and I'm very careful that when I teach social media law in schools one of the case studies that I use around sharing indecent images um, is a real life story uh, uh, about a girl who uh, uh, an ex-partner had naked pictures of her which he then tried to sell on Facebook they're all under 18 uh, and another boy uh, wanted to buy them and in that scenario the two boys the one selling and the one buying the images were the ones who had police intervention and they were charged with offences but the the girl did not and I use that as an example because I worry yeah. that young people when they are victims um will think 
I'm just going to be told I shouldn't have done that. I'm going to be in trouble with the police because I took an image or I shared it or, yeah. you know, they're going to blame me or they're going to say, how could you be so silly? You know, and that, that, that fear, mm-hmm. um, I think in the worst cases, you know, is what drives young people away from getting help and into some terrible, terrible situations yes. where they feel alone in the world and they have no way out. Yeah. Um, and so I really want to stress to young people, I'm teaching the law, but I'm also talking about, you know, victims and perpetrators. And, you know, it, it's not going to be in the public interest to send a young victim of revenge porn to prison. Like it's just mm-hmm. not, doesn't make any sense. So trying to kind of reassure young people, um, I guess, from that perspective, um, because, you know, it's it's not good enough for us to keep blaming victims. Yeah. Way. Um, the idea that, you know, it's somehow inevitable that you are going to be a victim of revenge porn is really problematic to me because we're not looking at who's behavior is actually creating the risk and the problem mm-hmm. you know, the perpetrator rather than the victim here yeah yeah we do a lot of fierce fear-mongering of, of children don't we yeah yeah <laughs> and you know the world is a big scary place even for me you know I'm nearly yeah. 30 and I wake up sometimes and put the news on and think oh it's a scary old world out there you know so you don't want to do too much of that I think to, to mm-hmm. young people as well it's got to be got to be sensible yeah well, I'm, I'm hoping to have a conversation with somebody who um, does a lot of conversations around uh, victim blaming. Um, mm. It was her PhD. And we keep missing each other calendar-wise and so on. But um, I'm going to pin her down and do a podcast with her as well. I look um, forward to listening to that. Unfortunately, it's still very rife. And I think the more we can challenge it, the better. I mean, that's one small thing that everybody mm-hmm. do, actually. When we talk about online abuse and digital, digitally enabled <laughs> kind of uh, offences the one thing I would love everyone to just start doing is if they hear somebody responsabilizing the victim or blaming the victim oh you shouldn't have posted this all come off come off social media for other um just to just to counter it just to challenge it and say actually um are you victim blaming there maybe we should focus on perpetrators behavior and not victims behavior yeah yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, this, I mean, there's so much more I could talk to you about, Holly, but we've, uh, we've, been, uh, we've been going for nearly an hour. Um, and this has become the generic platform now for um, not sticking to half an hour. So. <laughs> Good to hear it. So, is, is there anything you would like people to know um, about you? I'm going to put your... Um, so, you've got your website that you run as well, which yeah. is uh, about the online media and law. I think it's called online media law, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. I'd love to do... Really good. Yeah. No, it is. No, so that is a. Um, I've been doing online media law training since 2013, um, and I've trained amongst the, the thousands of young people who've had my training through this police-funded project in Surrey. Um, I'm increasingly doing training for university students. I said I train journalists. Um, mm-hmm. I've done training for lawyers and training, um, and businesses uh, and teachers and people involved in safeguarding uh, for young people. Um, yeah, training resources, um, and also just if you want to email me and have a chat, I'm very open to that as well. But that's uh, online media law is my Twitter handle, and you can find links to the website there and find okay. out what I do. Um, so yeah, thanks for that. Let me yeah. have. A- I, I will also I will also put in um I'm, I've just written it down you know why is the sky blue I'll see if I can get hold of that and put that in the show notes mm. as well so that again it's something that other people can find out about and go and have a look at um but 
thank you very much for giving your time up and thank you for a brilliant discussion. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. This podcast was edited by Rory Kavanagh, an audio enthusiast and music producer.